Please be seated. Good evening to you. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's turn on the Bible, uh, our Bible tonight to Psalm 12, our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have lots of Bibles, and you wave to them and get their attention. They'll be happy to get one in your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us and from the Lord this evening to you. Psalm 12, verse 1, David cries out, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. There are some who ascribe uh, Psalm 12, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if it uh, isn't the truth, ascribe it to that season in David's life. It's fascinating. David wrote these psalms all through uh, the very beginning as kind of a very young man and uh, before he was became the king of Israel and then many of the psalms long after he had been king for long decades and years. And this one uh, seems to have come out of maybe an incident in his life having to do with a man by the name of Doeg the Edomite. Do not name your sons Doeg the Edomite. He's one of the worst people in the whole Bible. David was very early. He wasn't yet king. He was a servant to the first king of Israel by the name of Saul. Saul became very jealous of God's anointing upon David, his favor with the people. Ultimately, David was forced to flee Saul for his life. And as a part of his fleeing, he uh, left the palace of, of King Saul, didn't have a weapon, didn't have any food for himself or the men that were traveling with him. And he went to where the high priest Ahimelech was with the other priests. And as he went to see them, he asked them for food. Ahimelech says, I don't have any food except for the showbread that's been offered to the Lord. And if you and your men have been are ceremonially clean, I will give that to you. And in terms of a weapon, David, I don't have any weapon to give to you except the sword that has been kept here that you used uh, and stripped uh, Goliath of when you killed Goliath. And David said, well, there's no sword like it. I will take that. And what Elhimelech did not realize is that David was on the lamb. He was fleeing from Saul. And by giving this, these um, items of food and this weapon to David, there was the possibility that it could be misunderstood as him supporting David in Saul's paranoia of supporting David and kind of being against King Saul. But Ahimelech and all of his family, the priests, were completely innocent in all of it. Then later on, this man by the name of Doeg the Edomite, he had overheard this entire conversation, witnessed it, and King Saul gathered together the people of the land in that area and said, you know, why do you guys love David more than you love me? And somebody is a spy for David here in our midst. And in order to kind of curry the favor of King Saul, Doeg the Edomite said, ah, I know that the priest, the high priest Ahimelech gave a sword and food to David, and he didn't give the circumstances with which it was they were given 
to him, and it made it sound like Ahimelech was supporting David in kind of a revolt against King Saul. And King Saul ordered Ahimelech and all of the priests and their families to be gathered to him. They came. It was an edict of the king. They had to do it. And the king Saul ordered Doeg the Edomite to kill every one of the priests, 70. I, I don't know what it is to kill a single human being with a weapon in my hand where they bleed out in front of you. But to be a man like that and to know that these 70 men are completely innocent and they represent God before the nation and he hacked all 70 of them to pieces and word then came to David what it is that had happened there and his heart was broken over the fact that what he had received from them resulted in in this and he really rued the words of Doeg the Edomite this terrible thing that he had said to King Saul that what he left out of what he communicated to King Saul completely misrepresented the situation and and made it uh, appear as something that it wasn't really a lie and so David here as he hears about it help Lord for the godly man ceases for the faithful disappear from among the sins of uh, the sons of men and this is something you would write when you hear about the death of 70 priests at the hand of a man who is less than an animal and so this psalm might very well have come out of that and he begins to speak then as he as he thinks about this he begins to think about the speech of wicked men he said they speak idly with uh, his neighbor. And the word idly can be translated just as easily destructive. Their speech is destructive. And Doeg's really was. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. They speak in order to gain uh, favor with people. They use flattery in order to get people to join them in their uh, wickedness. They have a double heart. In other words, they say one thing to your face, but their heart is someplace Else, He declared, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue which speaks proud things or the tongue which boasts. And so the mouth of the wicked is a boasting mouth. I hate this thing that's become so common in our culture, trash talking. And I don't know, I was raised in a time in the United States where it, it went on in athletics. But to me, it was always just a very uncool thing to do. I liked what the old 49ers were under Bill Walsh, and that is when you scored a touchdown, act like you've done it before. Act like you expected to score a touchdown on that drive. There's something cool about that is in, in my mind, and not this whole thing where you're going to do some chicken dance in front of them and throw it up in their face or trash talk on the court. But this thing has become, it's moved into entertainment. It's moved in from there as it always does into the culture, the boasting, the trash talking, this kind of thing. And it's the kind of thing that evil people do with their mouth. It certainly doesn't sound like Jesus. And who have said, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our ways, our ideas will prevail, their pride. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord of us? We're going to say whatever we want, and nobody can stop us. And then David writes and says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in in the safety for which he yearns. And so David has the confidence that God will 
alleviate the oppression and the sighing of the poor and the needy, being oppressed by the wicked man and being afflicted by the wicked man's uh, tongue. And so he knew that God wouldn't let, allow the wicked to ultimately prevail over the righteous who were in a very precarious place at this time in the history of the nation of Israel. And then in contrast to the words of men, isn't it a, there a wonderful contrast between the words of men and the words of God? He then describes the words of God. The words of the Lord are pure words. Do you like that word pure? The word of God is so pure, it washes us. That's why Paul talked about the word of God, the washing by the water of the word. Something's got to be pure to wash us. The word of God, unlike the word of man, the word of God will never defile us for having heard it or read it. Have you ever read the Bible and been defiled by it? Never. Never. Every time we read the Bible, purity is introduced into our life. There's never a regret. There are many conversations that I wish I'd never heard, that I never came into the eye gate, never came into the ear gate. I've never spent a moment in the word of God that I've regretted or that has made me impure as a result of that. The words of the Lord are like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. And so the word of God, speaking of that purity, seven in the Bible is, is the number of completion or the number of perfection. There are seven days in a week, seven colors in the rainbow. So when he talks here about the word of God being purified seven times, it means that it's been perfectly pured, uh, perfectly pure. It's been tested and, and found to be uh, absolutely Pure, as pure as silver that's been tried, heated up seven times with the dross taken off. By the time you did that, that was a Hebrew way of saying that something was absolutely perfectly pure. And as he speaks here concerning the Word of God, purified uh, seven, uh, seven times, it's, it has been tried in the furnace of the earth. The great thing about the Word of God is as we read it and as we obey it, we're we are obeying something that's tried and true. The world out here, I mean, the world every day, they've got a new thing. This is where this fad now is the, where life and meaning is found. And then this thing over here, you do this and everybody, everything is this cycle of moving from one crazy fad to the other, one disappointment to another after another. And the Word of God, you look at it for generations all the way through of God's people as they have simply absorbed the Word of God, obeyed the Word of God, the Word of God has been tested by generations of God's people for thousands of years in every conceivable circumstance that a person can ever face. And the Word of God has always risen to the need of, of the occasion, the need of the moment. And so this word that we trust is a word that's been tested by God, but it's also been tested by God's people. Always will be proven True. Jesus said concerning this as he finished out the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded 
on the rock. There is absolutely zero risk in knowing the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. I hope each of us as Christians has one, two, three people that are older than us maybe in the Lord or that we've had that in our life. Some of them have gone on to be with the Lord. I've had them in my life where I've been able to look at them and say, all the way through 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years in walking with the Lord and their life, all it did was just prove the truthfulness of the Word of God and the wisdom of the Word of God. And David said, You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of God. And so Psalm 12 teaches us that when the words of men dishearten us, then we need to turn to the Word of God for something that's pure and something that's sure. And that's a good lesson to hear about. All of us are going to be frequently disheartened by the words of men, whether it's a family member, uh, whether it's in a workplace, whether it's watching a newscast, whether it's a text that comes in or an email that comes in or a phone call that comes in. Very, very often some communication that is made will dishearten us, the words of men. We say, what's the solution to it? I feel so defiled by that conversation or I feel like the weight of the world is on me now as a result of that conversation. I'm worried like I haven't been worried in years as a result of that conversation. Where do I turn now that I've been disheartened by the words of man? Always to the book, always to the word of God, and there we'll find something that is pure and sure in our lives that will again cleanse away the effect of the disheartening and oftentimes defiling words of men. Psalm 13 is a psalm for the impatient. Let me just see how many there might just be. God's giving me names. Hold on a second. No, there's too many to say. Okay. But notice in Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord? How many of you recognize it? God's taking way too long to do what anybody could see needs to be done and done right now. So how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So David feels forgotten in this trial that he's in. How long, so it's repeated, will you hide your face from me? Lord, I can't feel you and what I'm in the middle of. And that's what he's feeling. I'm not feeling your favor in the middle of of this situation, this trial that I'm in. Then he repeats it a third time. How long shall I take counsel from my soul? God, you've gone silent on me. I'm in the middle of this great trial. And the only counselor I'm left with is me. That's a terrible thing. It's never true. If God is silent at the moment, it's just simply because he doesn't have anything to say at the moment. Or oftentimes, uh, what we need to do is, at a time like that, is to go back to what he told us last. I I like God to keep repeating himself all of the time, you know, reassure me of what it is that he's already said a hundred times to me. But oftentimes where God is silent to us at the moment, we say, oh, he's perfectly silent. He's not speaking to me. No, he's already said it, and he doesn't have anything else to say. 
They had to. What he said last is what is still holding us and we should hold on to in this situation. And that's a good thing to realize. Go back to Bethel. Go back to where we heard God last and then hold on to that until he says something else to us. And so here he is, how long, how long, how long? And it seems to uh, David here, he says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Lord, every moment that you delay, my enemy is strengthening himself and he has this feeling, God, you are losing valuable time. I mean, those of us who are impatient, we understand all the emotion of this psalm. Have you noticed that my voice has gone up when we got into this psalm? <laughs> I recognize it 100%. I'm a type A. Sometimes I don't, people think I don't come off as a type A. It's like, okay, all I need to know is what I'm supposed to do and let's get that done now. And, and so here he is, uh, God, listen, this is the perfect time to be doing this. Your delay is emboldening the enemies. The situation's getting worse. You are losing valuable time. That's what David is saying. And he's being very, very honest. He speaks for uh, the impatient all through the ages. And then he continues to cry out uh, to the Lord for uh, to freshly remember him in his situation. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God, this is this situation's going to be uh, the death of me. You know, he's he's in a deep trial. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. God, you need to intervene, or you're talking to a dead man here, not going to make it through this. And then at the end, these final couple of verses, he closes the psalm uh, on a tone of praise. He says, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, shall as a future, he's speaking into the future, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so, He closes the psalm in faith. He's got that impatience. He begins his prayer. So often we begin our prayers. We're frantic. God, things are going so fast. You're taking so long. And we've got all that going on. The longer we pray with the Lord, then pretty soon that anxiousness is replaced by God's peace. And then the desire just to praise him. Lord, you are in control. I will praise you ahead of time for what you're doing in this situation and the good thing that you're going to bring out of it. And, and so David prays the Lord uh, ahead of time. And he ends the prayer in this position of faith. Now, in reading the Psalm uh, 13, the Psalm of David, we have the advantage. David writes it in the middle of the heat of the battle, so to speak. We have the advantage of having a historical record of uh, David's life and God's dealings with David. And so you go back into the historical books. Here David thinks God is late. Read through David's life. Was God ever late once? He was never late, not one single time. Did God ever make a bad decision? Never made a bad decision. Did David ever suffer a setback in his life because of some negligence on God's part? Had God ever forgotten him? It never, ever happened. David had an absolutely outstanding life that he was able to live. It was all due to God's very active involvement in his life. 
to God's perfect timing in all things. And so the same thing that is true of David is true of us. So David is given as an example in the Scriptures where we can look and say, yes, David felt all of that, but I know David's life and none of that was true. And the same thing is true as it relates to our lives. And one of the great lessons here, this psalm for the impatient, is that God is always on time. Uh, Not my time, but he's always on time for what he's doing. And he's always doing quite a bit more than I think that he's doing. I always think the scope of the problem is like this big. Anybody could figure that. You just go here, a right and a left and a thing and a hand, and then an atom bomb, and it's all taken care of on the thing. And then he's taking care of something that is gigantic, developing godly character in our lives, making our second cousin end up be saved because of this situation, then working over here and this and all this stuff. He's got such a big picture that he's working with that he's trying to deal with and knock out. And so here it is whenever, and one of the great lessons, and Jesus teaches it as well, one of the great lessons for the impatient, the psalm brings it out as well, is that if God ever says no to something in our life, then it's only, or he says no to our timing, it's only because he's up to something better. Never doubt that. Never, ever doubt that. Our flesh will fight it, but we should never doubt that. Say the timing is perfect. Lord, if you don't, we'll miss. It'll be over. The opportunity will be lost forever. Don't believe any of that. If he allows the opportunity to pass then he has something even better in mind than what we thought would have been the end result if he had acted in our timing. And the Bible teaches, prophet Isaiah, that while we wait, God works. He's always working. We're waiting. We think time is being lost. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And it's not. While we wait, God is working in the situation but to have it result in his end, which is both good for him and good for us. Psalm 14 is a psalm of the fool. And David uh, writes, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. This is known as clarity uh, in the Bible. So there's no uh, position for, uh, you know, atheism is from the vantage point of heaven. It's a uh, unsupportable position or the position of an agnostic. The person who says there is no God in the assessment of heaven is that that person is a fool. And so here you have uh, a man uh, that or a woman who declares concerning the God of the Bible or the creator of the heavens and the earth that he does not exist, there is no God. Now, the, the news of his non-existence is uh, 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 news to the Lord because he knows that he exists. And the evidence for his existence is uh, very, very considerable. And uh, so... Here he is, he recognizes it's always gone on throughout human history that a portion of his creation does not believe in his existence. And so people are free to come to that conclusion about God 
But he is then free to come to a conclusion about the person that comes to that conclusion. And he says that person is a fool or that is foolish. That is a foolish conclusion for any person to come to. It's fascinating because we live in um, the Western world uh, and in the United States of America. And everybody is so smart and God is so dumb by and large. So God comes along and says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In our culture, our culture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is a God. The whole, the whole culture is uh, flipped upside down, contrary to how heaven views things. That's why you have to be careful of the culture that we live in, not to be indoctrinated by it or to listen to it or f- be fashioned by it, because it's a polar opposite Uh, and what it teaches and what it endeavors to turn a human being into, exact opposite of what God is endeavoring uh, to do. And so this is the, this kind of attitude goes on and prevails at different times in human history, and we're in just that uh, kind of a time. One of the, some of the evidences for why it's foolish uh, to believe that there is no God Number one is in the light of creation. We talked about some of this this morning, that the creation out there, the heavens and the earth, that the creation speaks of a creator always. I have a little stopwatch right here. And there, there is a creator behind this creation. And again, what is true of everything in life, we understand there's a creator behind the creation. We are to come understand that to be true of the universe and the world that we live in, that this did not just happen, that there is a creator behind this creation. And then there's the argument of design, that anywhere you see design in the world, that there is a designer behind that design. I love to go to museums. I never get to go to a museum and have enough time to be in there to see everything that I want. But there's certain things that I do like, paintings that I like to see in museums. And when I, you know, you turn the corner and you come in the room and there's maybe 20 of them in the room, maybe five of them in the room, depending on the size of the room. And, and I'll do a quick look. I'm going to look at all of them before I get out of the room, but a quick look for what just catches my eye immediately and I head over to it. And when a painting really catches my eye, I don't uh, get down before the painting and worship it and all. What I do is I look at that painting and then I look down into the lower right-hand corner who painted this masterpiece because behind all design there is a designer and the creator is always greater than his creation and the designer is always greater than his design. And so it is foolish in the light of creation and design to believe that there isn't a God. There is also the evidence of conscience, as Paul wrote in uh, Romans chapter 2, the fact that each and every one of us is born with a conscience and that uh, a conscience is a, we have a universal sense of right and wrong that is across all of mankind, no matter where you find them in whatever country or whatever nation. In every country, there are certain things that are always right and certain things that are always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Murder is always wrong. Robbery is always wrong. The opposite is always right. The interesting thing about our conscience is that nobody lives up to the level of our conscience, which tells us that our conscience does not have its origin in us, but that it has its origin in someone who is higher than us. 
And as Paul argues, our conscience speaks to us every single day of the fact that we were once created something superior to what we are now, but we have fallen from that. Sometimes you see, maybe you'll be on a blog or something like this, and there's the big discussion is going on. One of the things that, uh, say, an atheist or an agnostic gets a little uptight about related to Christians is where a Christian uh, might say, or any religious person really might say, but a Christian might say that you, uh, that, uh, you can't have a morality apart from God. People will not be moral apart from uh, God. And they will argue and say, what do you mean? I mean, you can be moral apart from God, and they will lay out their case. And typically when they lay out their case... For morality in people, independent of a belief in God, they are describing conscience. They are describing a God-given conscience that they possess, given them from God. But the God that they do not accept or believe in. And so even the argument that I can be a relatively moral person independent of a belief in God is someone who hasn't taken enough time to think about where in the world did I get this conscience from that is the source of my morality. So God says if anybody's going to stop and think for just a little while, it all rolls back to uh, understanding that there is a, a God behind all of this. It's interesting. I was talking with one of the brothers in the church Today, I'm going to mutilate the story, and uh, I make every story whatever I want it to be. So just know that ahead of time. But he was talking about a a doctor that he had been in contact with, a very brilliant man, and he had uh, studied medicine in Russia. And and the the brothers had asked him, well, have you always been a Christian your whole, you know, your whole life? Oh, no, I haven't been a Christian my whole life. Well, what happened? He said, I was in my third year of medical school. And he said, I was looking at a piece of DNA under a microscope. And I suddenly realized there has to be a God. Now, that that is a man who is being honest about the evidence that God puts before every human being, whether by the naked eye or the telescope or the microscope. It all communicates the existence of God. And then the fourth great thing of the four great things that speak of the existence of God is the Word of God. No wonder why the devil wants to keep the Word of God away from people. There is nothing that so satisfies, provides so satisfying an explanation for the world that we live in except for this Bible. How did we get here? Why are we here? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? Why do we die? Why are we the way that we are? What happens after death? These questions, all of them answered specifically by the Bible. And so the Word of God itself, a testament. Sometimes people say, man wrote it. I say, you show me the man that can write this book. I'll buy him lunch. And I'm a Scot. No, you can't, you can't know this book. You can't read this book and say a man wrote this book. I don't care how elevated your view of mankind is. You can't. The book itself is a witness, not only in the questions that it answers, but in the questions that it's willing to, uh, to address. 
Questions that other religious systems just completely and conveniently avoid. God takes all of them on. All of it testifies to the uh, existence of God. Now, the interesting thing about, I talk about uh, the, the existence of God, and people say, I don't believe in the existence of God, and, and so they call themselves an atheist. Well, the fact of the matter is, atheists don't believe in God, but God doesn't believe in atheists. How do you like that? How do you like them apples? And here's why. Practically speaking, there is no such thing as an atheist. That's a game you play in your head, that you're an atheist. Everyone worships something. Everyone does. Everyone has a master passion in our life. The thing we eat, we sleep, we breathe for, the thing that we live for. It can be a car. It can be a home. It can be a boyfriend. It can be a girlfriend. It can be a hobby. It can be a lot of different things. But everyone has a God. And the Bible teaches not only does every single human being have a God, but that we are becoming like the God that we worship. Well, that's fabulous when the when your God is the God of the Bible. It's a terrible thing when your God is porn or materialism or just going from one emotional fix to another to another to another relationally. Because all it does is it creates a greater and an unhealthy dependence upon whatever that master passion is. And so there are consequences to not believing in God and there are consequences as it relates to who and what we choose to make our master passion. And that's why he speaks here in the latter half of verse 14, the implications of the, the... the higher the standard or the higher our understanding of God, then the higher the quality of life or the holiness of life that we will live. And, of course, you can't be any holier than the God of the Bible. And so here is the, the ramifications of not believing in God. He said they are corrupt and they have done abominable uh, works. And so these are the things that offend God, uh, things that are an abomination to Him. There is none who does uh, good. And so this kind of person is an influence in society, not for good, but for bad. And the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have come to, uh, together, become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. You show me a great civilization, a great and powerful nation in the history of the world that became godless, and that nation becomes a threat historically to its own people and a threat to the whole wide world because there's something about us realizing that one day we will have to answer to one who is greater than us that keeps us in a place of safety in terms of our, our activities even if we don't trust in 
in Christ for salvation. You throw God out of the mix, out of the human experience, and people will go down and down and down and down until we're living worse than animals. You, Any of you that know anything about history, it's repeated over and over again. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. They, uh, so this failure to believe in God, this atheism, it ultimately leads to a persecution of the righteous and of the godly. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And so you see in a, in a country or a nation where uh, that is godless, you see the first abuses that start to take place is the taking advantage of the poor and of the powerless. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And so David cries out in the midst of all of this for the coming uh, of the Messiah, the establishment of his kingdom uh, upon the earth when there won't be any, there'll be no atheist during the thousand-year reign of Christ because he'll be right there for everybody to see. I don't believe he exists. Bonk, rod of iron, boom, right on the head. I exist. So he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And so, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion And when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And so uh, David's psalm about uh, the atheist and his prayer for the day that when all of that, the ungodly and that view will be brought to an end. And then uh, chapter 15 uh, speaks about the God who may abide or the person who may abide with God. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? And so uh, David is basically asking the question of God, and God is kind enough to answer uh, the question. He says, Lord, who can abide in your temple? Who can dwell in your holy hill? The holy hill speaking of Mount Zion, the city of David, or Jerusalem. And uh, the tabernacle of uh, the tent of meeting was there. It represented the the dwelling of God, the house of God among uh, his people. And the word abide carries the idea of uh, settling in and making yourself at home for a while. And the word dwell, it carries the same kind of an idea of settling down, spending a long time somewhere. And so David is is asking the Lord, Lord, uh, who do you like? to have come to your house? What kind of company do you like when your people gather at your tabernacle and later at your temple? We would, today we would say, Lord, what, what kind of person allows you to be the most comfortable uh, when they come in to a church service? And what, what allows that service to be enjoyable for you? And so, Lord, who do you like to have come over to your house? What kind of guests do you like to have settle in and stay for a long time? Who do you like to hang around with? Who are you comfortable with in in your home? And who is it that when they come into your house, uh, their presence makes it a blessing for you? And that's, that's that's the, those are the questions of a true worshiper of God. A person who comes in, let's say into a church service like this, any church service, comes in 
And when they come in to meet with God in a church service like this, their concern is not just that God would bless them, as important as that is, and we all want that, but there is the recognition that this servant service isn't all about me and isn't even supremely about me. I've come into God's house. And so the, the true worshiper looks and says, yes, I need to be blessed and I want to be blessed. But I want to be the kind of person that comes into a service like this that makes this service a blessing to the Lord. Now, he's not talking about the unsaved or, or that kind of thing where somebody walks in and they don't know anything about God and, and uh, you know, they have said half a dozen swear words to the person that handed them the bulletin when they come in. God, God's not talking about that kind of person. He's talking about those of us who know better, those of us who've walked with the Lord for a while. And there's that recognition. God, when I come to church today, my concern, my greatest concern is that you will thoroughly enjoy yourself. And that you will enjoy my company in, in that place. And, that, and you say, you think, well, that's kind of um, forward to think that God could enjoy my company. But he can. And, that's, and, and he wants to. So there's a concern that the Lord would enjoy himself. The, the whole Christian culture even is, the culture that we live in is so selfish. I, me, my. We don't even talk about, uh, everything's a self this and self this and I, me, and me, and my, and my, and me, and me, and this, and all of that. And we used to talk about it in the old days. You used to call people selfish. It was like a derogatory term. Now I think they make T-shirts and stuff like that. I'm selfish. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a happy kind of assessment, apparently, in, in life. And so the culture is so self-focused that it inv- invades then the church. And then we can come in, unless we're careful, and there are psalms like this that are in the Bible to make us realize that, hey, God wants to enjoy himself here as well. And we've talked about it before when we were looking at some of the historical books, that recognition of the fact that um, that if a, if a church or a people like the children of Israel, but for our application for a local church, there's a tipping point. Sometimes people say, you know, over at that church, I was talking about holiness and obeying the Word of God and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we just need, to, just need a little bit of a break and maybe they could serve some wine out in the foyer or something like that. And they're just so strict over there and everything. And, and, and so much about this holiness and, and all of this. And then, but there needs to be that, that recognition. That, but there's a tipping point related to our lives. There can come a place where there's so much unholiness in a congregation that God can just look at it and say, as he would look at all of our hearts, and he would just look and say, I can't enjoy myself there anymore. They don't teach the Word of God anymore, which is the standard of holiness that keeps a holy standard in our life. And now they're just living like everybody else that's out there in the world. And a body can endure a certain percentage of that kind of group, a mixed multitude within it. But then pretty soon if that mixed multitude becomes the rule and everybody's living like the world and the whole thing and nobody's serious about God enjoying himself in the service, then pretty soon we turn around and we go, what happened to God? When did you notice he was missing? I started noticing about six months ago. When did you notice? It was about eight months ago. When did you notice? About three months ago I noticed that he just kind of lifted off the place. And that's what happens. He just takes his glory someplace else. 
to where people are not just concerned about ourselves, but we're concerned that he will enjoy himself in the service as well and that he would be blessed. And so this is the kind of thing that was a concern for David, and I know it's our concern as well. And so David poses the questions, and then uh, the Lord graciously answers uh, the questions, and he describes the person that allows him to enjoy fellowship, intimate, unbroken fellowship with uh, a child of God and, in, and to enjoy a corporate worship service. He said, he who walks uprightly, and the idea is with a whole heart. They're sold out for the Lord. I mean, here's the use the word sold out. I don't even people can use that anymore because it's, so, it's not cool enough. But the, that's, that's, God likes that kind of person. And he likes to fellowship with them. And they work righteousness. In other words, they, they walk the talk and speaks the truth in his heart. And so he, uh, he doesn't have this uh, two things where he's saying one thing and, and then uh, believing something else in his heart. No hypocrisy. He who does not backbite with his tongue. So destroying people, you know, during the week and all with the tongue and then coming into the room and then lifting praises up to the Lord. The Lord just goes, like James says, you know, you've got bitter water and sweet water coming out of the same mouth and it shouldn't be so. And it just ruins it, you know, for the Lord. So this tongue is used one way during the week and then another week, another way in the, at the tabernacle of the church service and God says it ruins all of it for me. Nor does evil to his neighbor. He's a good neighbor. God says I like hanging around with those kind of people. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't slander his friends in whose eyes a vile person is despised. In other words, this is the, he says I like to hang out with people that despise vileness. In other words, they they got a strong sense of right and wrong, and they and they uh, and and they really strongly reject the ways of the wicked. We think oh, they're a fanatic, they're crazy. I mean, don't they know the times have changed? You just have to accept that everybody does this, everybody watches that, everybody listens to this. No, they don't. And and God says, I like that. They strongly reject the ways of the wicked. He says, I like that in people that settle down and make themselves at home in, in my house. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He's the kind of person that if someone's being persecuted for their faith in Christ, that person won't stand alone when there's one of these kind of Christians around. Say, boy, I hope they never find out I'm a Christian and they do that to me. That person gets up and walks right over and stands next to that Christian that's being persecuted. So you'll persecute both of us the same way if this is how you're going to treat them. I don't know how many of you, well, I better not bring that up. It's a good illustration. I'm not stopping from saying something too terrible, but I don't want to recommend it. But that's the kind of person that honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. He's a man of his word. He who does not put out his money out at usury or lend money to the poor, the powerless. Here's somebody, a neighbor that lost their whole crop, not because of laziness or something like that, just the circumstances, needs to borrow money for seed. They wouldn't then uh, lend him the money for usury to kind of break his back and make him dependent upon him. 
He would give him the kind of money, loan it to him without any interest so he could get back on, on his feet so he doesn't take advantage of the poor or of the powerless. It's, it is so important for us to recognize the heart of God toward the poor from one end of this book to the other. And I'm talking about the working poor or those that are poor not because of laziness on their part. You weren't lazy in the ancient world. You starved to death if you were lazy. That's just how it worked. There was no social kind of net under everyone. And so, but there are circumstances. We have, again, what we call the working poor today, where here's a guy or a gal hustling. They got two jobs, three jobs, doing over this, barely keeping the gas in the tank, and, the, and then to get over here and do this and get the kids over and the whole deal. And they're hustling like crazy just to keep it all going. God's heart is great toward that kind of person. And they are to be uh, taken care of and blessed, looked after by the body of Christ and by God's people. But then somebody comes in and says, that's the kind of person I can take advantage of. And, and they're those kind of people. I'll cash their checks for a quarter of their check. Or I'll sell them used cars because they don't know any better and they're desperate and their price range is right here. And I'm gonna, if somebody's going to sell them a piece of junk, I might as well be the one that does it. And God, God hates that kind of stuff. And so he does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And he's, he's incorruptible in terms of a bribe, and he can't be bought. He doesn't have a price. And he who does these things shall never be moved. In other words, God says not only is this kind of life that's described in verses 2 through 5, not only uh, 5a, not only is that life, God says, not only is that a life that blesses me, but that is a life that blesses the person that lives it. Because he who does these things shall never be moved. It results in a stable life because it is built on the two most stable things in the universe, and that is a relationship with God and obedience to his word. So Psalm 15, it isn't a psalm that's meant to... Listen, every one of us is imperfect when we come into a church service or we come into church and God is working and that kind of thing. But it's talking about just settling in and just becoming a willful, deliberately disobedient person to God's word. And I know better than that. God says, that starts to ruin it for me. And not only is it not good for me, God says, but it's not good for you. So Psalm 15 is actually a pretty good psalm to uh, read before heading off to church and just looking and saying, God, I want you to thoroughly enjoy my presence in that church service today. And I just want to run my life through this song uh, of David. David was certainly not a perfect man. And he didn't die a perfect man. And none of us will be perfect people. And we won't die perfect people. Once we die, we'll be perfect people as Christians. And all of this will be 100% true for us. But it is a good kind of psalm to make us stop and think about the fact that church is supremely for God. And as long as it is supremely for God, then he will make it what it needs to be in our lives. To the degree that man is exalted in a service is the degree to which God is robbed of his glory. 
This is about glorifying God and blessing him. And this is a great recipe for making sure that our lives are doing that. Well, we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next week in Psalm 16. If the men would come forward, we'll prepare.